I want to talk to you in Genesis 28 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you may want to turn there. But I want to start off with a question. Imagine you're in your family, and you can imagine the situation, whatever, and imagine something happens, and you blow it. And imagine it's your fault. What do you do after you've blown it? Well, if you remember the story, we have Jacob and Esau. One is the favorite of the father, one is the favorite of the mother. The mother gets the younger to connive the father and cheat the older one out of his blessing. You have lies, you have deception, you have trickery, you have all kinds of issues going on. And now you have Jacob, his older brother, who is ready to just kill him because he deceived him told somebody that the only way he finds comfort in life is knowing that one day he's going to get to kill his brother. Now, can you imagine being in that situation? The mother who has now lied to the father by using the son to manipulate, she now no longer sees her son. He's gone. And you're talking about a family mess. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when you've blown it? Well, let me give you just a few steps that could be helpful to you if, you've, if you have blown it and you are the reason. Number one, sincerely apologize. One of the most startling things about this whole passage is you never hear one person going to the other going, I am so sorry for what I have done. I should not have done that. Please forgive me and help me to find forgiveness in your heart. So sincerely apologize. As someone said, that's usually the first step to reconciliation, is being willing to apologize. I can't tell you, and I'm sure others here who help people could not tell you how often this is the most lacking thing in any relationship, is for someone just to willingly come out and say, I am sorry that I did that. It takes humility. The second step is, don't lie to yourself about what happened. We love to do that, don't we? We tell ourselves, well, if such and such hadn't done that, or if such and such hadn't, then I wouldn't have done that. Stop lying to yourself. Just go ahead and admit, you know what? I was a bullheaded rascal. And I acted incorrectly, and I acted wrongly. And I, I know that. I'm, I'm not going to say make any more excuses. I know exactly what I did, and I'm going to own it. Third, look for ways to repair the relationship. If someone gives you a half of an, a crack to, to go through to repair the relationship, take it. Take it. If you see an olive branch extended out, step toward that branch. And as long as they're willing to extend that, step into that and try to repair the relationship. You never know, folks. Just one word might repair a broken relationship. One act of humility. A fourth step is learn from your mistakes. You know, after we blow it and we do something wrong and we realize we did that, the way you know a wise person is when they learn from what they did and the next time they're tempted to do that, they catch themselves and say, Oh, I've already been down that road full of potholes. Don't go that way. Stop. So learn from our mistakes. Fifth, don't blame other people. Kind of goes back with number two, but don't blame shift. 
Own the responsibility. Take what you have done and don't worry about somebody else's problems. By the way, anytime you're trying to repair a relationship, if you go in, you have to own it like it's 100% your problem. And you have to trust God to allow the other person to see that it's their problem. But if you go in trying to point someone else's problems out and you think you're going to reconcile a relationship, 99% of the time, forget it. Because the only person you can fix is yourself. And then number six, accept that you can't control the reaction of others. You know, if you go in to repair or you go in to try to help a relationship, you have zero control over how the other person reacts. You cannot manipulate control and you shouldn't even want to. We should all desire reconciliation, but you can't change another person. You have to accept that up front. And then finally, and maybe best of all, Trust God in the whole process. Now, by the way, God was working in this messy family, in this messy situation, and God was going to bring about his plan through all of this chaos. And so we're going to turn to Genesis 28 where you are, and I'm going to show you a picture here this morning of all kinds of issues about Jacob's ladder. Now, I'm an 80s kid. How many 80s kids do we have here? few, not many. I'm one of a few. Huey Lewis sang a song back in the 80s. Do you all remember that? Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Uh, you want me to say the lyrics to you? Basically, it wasn't written by Huey Lewis. It was written by another man. And what it was is it was portraying a, an evangelist. He, he talks about a fat man selling salvation in his hand. He met a fan dancer down in Alabama, in Birmingham, and as she walked out of a club, there was a fat man selling salvation in his hand. And he was trying to get her to buy his salvation. It was making fun of a television ministry. There was a scandal going on in that time, for those of you who remember it. And the girl turns to the preacher and basically tells him, I don't need what you're selling. All I want from tomorrow is to make it better than today. And then comes the lyric, step by step, rung by rung, climbing Jacob's ladder. In other words, they totally misunderstood the whole point of Jacob's ladder. Well, the countryside tried it. Have you all heard the country song about Jacob's ladder? I was telling somebody about my sermon this week. They said, have you heard the country song? I said, no, just Huey Lewis. Oh, you need to hear this one. So I listened to the country song of Jacob's ladder. And it's about... A love story between a young man and a woman, a girl. <clears throat> and when he finally falls in love with her, he has reached the top of Jacob's ladder. Well, sorry, they missed the point too. So when you don't have a song that can match it, then what do you do? Then you go rock climbing and you have a, a, a cliff that is named Jacob's ladder. Well, that's not necessarily it either. Now, here is the question. Jacob is going to have a dream. We're going to see that in a minute. And he sees a ladder. Now, what kind of a ladder does he see? Is this one that you go to Lowe's and buy called a runged ladder? You know, is Jacob seeing angels coming up and down on the ladder? Or perhaps, back in the ancient culture, perhaps this is what he saw. This is a stairwell off of a ziggurat. Think back to Tower of Babel. 
Think pyramids in Egypt with the top cut off where it would come up and the sides would be sloped like this. And the whole idea of that ziggurat type platform was it was a place that had a top dedicated to the heavenly gods. And so in the Tower of Babel, if you all know the story in Genesis chapter 10, there's some irony there when the men are building this tower to heaven and the narrator says that God comes down to see what they're doing. You know, God has to stoop way down. And when God finally sees, the people would believe that the gods would travel from heaven down to earth after they built this wonderful place for the gods to dwell. Well, Jacob is running for his life. The last words he hears from his brother, I'm going to kill you. The last words he hears from his mother and father, if you marry a wild woman like your brother Esau, I'm going to go crazy. Go to Uncle Laban. Go to Laban's. Marry someone from your own tribe. And so what happens? He goes. He flees. You're a fine young man. <laughs> he flees away. And he's running for his life, and he's also running from his own brother and his own family. So as we turn here this morning, you have to keep this concept in mind. I'm going to read in summary form how one man describes Jacob's situation. Listen carefully. The psychic force of Esau's rage at Jacob's stealing both his birthright and the blessing ate at his heart. It is a terrible weight to be so hated by someone in your own family. How bitter it must have been for Jacob to know that his misery had been unnecessary, that it was the creation of his own unbelieving deceit <clears throat> and stupidity, that the vulture that was eating his vitals was reared in his own nest. The mouth of God had promised Jacob the firstborn position, but Jacob had stolen it with his own lies unwilling to wait on God's timing. Such pain. Jacob was now profoundly alone. He has no one to talk to, and he was totally in the dark, howling wasteland, full of real and present danger. His solitary state was palpable. Exhausted and despondent, Jacob settles for a stone pillow and falls fast asleep. Now let's pick up in the text, and here's a brief outline of Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And as we begin to read, here it is on the, on the screen. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, about 500 miles, by the way, by foot. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. How many times is the word place mentioned here? Place, place, place. By the way, keep that in mind. Anytime you read and you see repetition in narrative, that's a cue. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. Let me read it this way. Behold, there was a stairway set up on the earth. Notice carefully now. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, does anything catch your mind when you read this text? 
the angels of God were what? Which way are they going first? Okay, they're, they're going up. Which implies what? They've already been down. So they're going up and they're coming back down. Keep that in mind. I'm just pointing out some things that are obvious. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now if you're reading this in the original language, this is what it says. Look, a ladder. Look, angels. Look, the Lord. I mean, the central focus is not the ladder. It's not the angels. It's the fact that the Lord was there. In this howling desert wasteland, God's presence was there. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. This is so significant because the blessing that God had made with Abraham and had passed to his father Isaac is now being confirmed to the trickster, the rascal, the supplanter, the deceiver, the liar, the cheater, Jacob. Now can you fathom this? God is going to work with this rascal. I'm going to give you the same thing I promised your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac. You're going to have the land that I promised them. Notice what he says. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now can you imagine a promise like this? That through your children, blessing is going to come to the entire earth. What a privilege, what a responsibility, what a blessing. And God's going to use this man, Jacob. Behold, I am with you. I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And you can, by the way, put a period right there. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised, period. Now there's going to be a lot transpire from now until the time Jacob comes back to this place. And by the way, he does come back, for those of you who are reading through your Bible, somewhere about Genesis 35, after about 20, 20 years, while Jacob earned his doctorate degree over in the school of Uncle Laban, 20 years, he's going to be running for his life again. And he's going to be faced with, do I go to Bethel or do I go somewhere else? Do I come back to this place or do I go somewhere else? So can you imagine Jacob in his dream here hearing God say, I'm with you, I'm going to give you the promise. All families of earth are going to be blessed and my presence is going to be with you and I won't leave you until I do it. What do you think Jacob would say? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. Now let me ask you a question. How many times has God been in the place that you didn't think he was? And you didn't know it. 
I'll come back to that one in just a minute. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now hold on for a minute. The house of God. This is the house of God. What does he mean by that? Sometimes we say when people come to church, we're coming to the house of God. Is that what he meant? Did he, did he mean there was a local church there? Please say no. What he meant was, this was a place where God's presence was active and God was there. And he's actually going to name this place Bethel. Sometimes a church will call themselves Bethel or Bethel. Bethel, house of God. Beit El, God's house. But notice the second thing that Jacob says about it. Not only is it God's house where he dwells, but it's also the gate of heaven. Now what does that mean? Well, a gate and a, a gateway is how you enter something, right? So Jacob here is saying that God is present here, and this is also the gate right into his presence. Now, Jacob's going to have a lot to learn because he's going to find out God is with him over in Haran. God is with him in other places. And God was specifically, though, involved in this particular place and in this instance. So Jacob named it the house of God and the gate of heaven, the place where you find access to God. Now, hold that because I'm going to come back to it, okay? I'm just opening the door. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. And that's not West Virginia for, you know, a pillar. He took, he took the rock, he took the pillow that was a rock, and he set it up for a pillar, right? And he's making a monument out of it. This is what they used to do back in that day. They would think headstone, something where you, you don't forget what it is, cornerstone, something very important. So he sets this pillar, pillow up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. That was a way of signifying he was anointing its presence and he was marking it as something important. He called the name of that place House of God, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Now if you want an interesting study, which I don't have time to get into this morning, you should study Bethel and events that occurred in Bethel. If you go over in the book of Kings, and especially during the time of some of the writings of the prophets, uh, one of the kings in the north took two golden calves and took them down to Bethel and set them up right here in the house of God. And we sometimes wonder why God divided the nations of Israel and carried them into captivity. So the place of God's presence, the house of God and the gate of God, then became the place of golden calf worship later in Israel's history. Okay, I don't have time to get into that, but it's fascinating. Then Jacob made a vow. Now, can you hear yourself here? This is so convicting. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then... The Lord shall be my God. If then. Now this is interesting by the way. Do you all ever do that? God if you'll get me that promotion. Then I will do this. God if you heal me. 
then I will serve you. God, if you'll change this relationship that I'm in, then I will do this. Now, by the way, God puts up with that from us. He lets us give these human conditions. And I'm sure he just smiles. Oh, yeah. If, if, you, if I do this, then you'll do that. God just smiles, but he's so patient with us, isn't he? You know, that, this is how we know, by the way, we're very young in our faith. This is how we know we have a lot of growth to go. We, we make conditions with God. God, if you'll make this work out the way I want it, then I'll serve you in this way. God, if you be faithful to me the way I think you should, then I will do this for you. I've done that before. Have you never done that? Y'all are looking at me like you've never done that. Okay, maybe I'm the only one. But nevertheless, as we grow in our Christian life, we learn to pray like our Lord and say what? Not my will, yours be done. If it's sickness, if it's pain, if it's problems, Lord, whatever, you know best, not me. But if you'll do this, God, then I will do this. And then Jacob adds a little caveat to it. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give you a full tenth back. How many Christians have said this? Now, I'm not going to get off on giving this morning. Lord, if you'll bless me, then I'll, 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 give, you, I'll give you a tenth of what you give me. You give me 100% of that, God, and I'll, I'll give you 10% back. I'll, I'll do it grudgingly, but I'll still do it. Lord, bless me. Jacob's bargaining with God. Now, let me ask you some questions. What are some lessons we learn from this? I mean, this is a powerful passage. And I couldn't just preach chapter 28 through 35, which I probably should have done, but I just can't skip this stuff. It's too good. What are some lessons, and I want to share four of them, that I think will change our life based on this passage. First of all, whether we know it or not, God is present, working, and reaching for you even in the darkest and loneliest times of your life. Do you know sometimes God has to get us in the wasteland? God has to get us in the wilderness. God has to get us in isolation and alone where we can actually get rid of all of the things in our life and all the stuff that's going on to finally break us. Sometimes it's through a broken relationship that we realize we're not going to find our contentment in another human. Sometimes it's in a loss of a job. Sometimes it's in the death of a loved one. Sometimes it's in a very hard place in life. I mean, you name the place. Cancer, in sickness, in a hospital bed. Sometimes God has to get us all the way down. And, but when he does, and we're willing to listen, we discover that God is right there with us. And has been, and will be, right in the midst of our loneliness. This is what God taught Jacob. Jacob thought there was no one around him. He was all by himself. And right in the midst of his loneliness, God began to do his greatest work. You want something that's a blessing? Hold your place here in Genesis and go over to Psalm chapter 139. 
And I want to read these two verses to you because the next time you're in a dark place and you don't know what to do, the best thing you can remember is God does. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, by the way, I was preparing this sermon on Monday morning uh, while I was at my house. And I have to say to you, when I came across this verse, this is what came to my mind immediately when this lesson jumped out. And it's not oftentimes that I have these goosebumps come over me. This made goosebumps come over me. And this is what David writes in Psalm 139, verse 11. Listen closely. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees when we can't. God knows what you need and what I need, and God is there to help. And when things are pitch black to us and we can't see which way to go, what's in front of us or what's behind us, I want you to know something about God, folks. He doesn't need a flashlight. God doesn't need a light. He knows. He sees and He works. He's present and He's working and He's reaching for us even in the darkest times of our life. This is God, the God we serve. Arkant Hughes writes this in his commentary of Genesis. Fellow believers, this is all grace. Jacob, the conniving believer who was outcast and alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery with an unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was fleeing the consequences of his deception. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed upon his soul and with not even a word of reproach. The vision and the voice of God only bore assurances. You know, one thing I find fascinating about this whole section in Genesis, I don't find one time God rebuked him audibly in the passage. Now, he does it through Laban. By the way, listen closely. Every deception and every lie Jacob told are going to come back on him fourfold. He lied to his father and he deceived his father. Laban's going to lie to him and Laban's going to deceive him. Not only does he have to get the older for the younger and the wives, but he's going to have all kinds of issues with maidservants. And then when he works for Uncle Laban, if you've ever had an employer like this, Laban changed his wages ten times. Jacob says this with his own mouth. He said, looking back on it, if God hadn't been with me, you'd have stole everything I had. I mean, God's really going to work him over. And then later on in Jacob's life, when he shows favoritism to his youngest son, Joseph, and the older brothers take Jake, Joseph and go to sell him and kill him and put him into slavery, what do they tell their father? They lie to him and say, is this his coat? He must have been eaten by an animal. I mean, God's going to be working on Jacob. But listen to me. 
He's still there with him right in the midst of all of his deception and deceit. You know, that says something to us, doesn't it? Sometimes we think that we're so bad that God still can't use us. That God can't work in our heart and our life because we're so sinful. Well, I have some good news for you today. There's hope. There's hope. God doesn't quit. And he's there. The second lesson that I want you to learn, learn with me, by the way, is that God guides through events and circumstances in life to fit his plan, not necessarily yours. God guides to fit his plan, not necessarily yours. Now, let's get right down, right on shoe level here. What Believer in Jesus, I'm talking to you as a believer this morning. What is God's plan for your life? Now, by the way, God does have an overall plan and purpose for your life. And I'm going to give it to you right now. Are you ready for it? God's goal in your life is to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus. That is what God's goal is for your life. People ask all the time, well, I wish I knew God's will for my life. I'm going to give it to you. He he is going to turn you into the image of Jesus Christ. And day by day, as you and I live, God allows circumstances. He allows events. He allows people. He allows problems. Sometimes he allows blessings to come into our life to make us, to shape us, to mold us more like Jesus. Until we reach the end of our life, whether it's by natural death or whether Jesus returns. And the Bible tells us that at that moment, when we see him, we shall be like him. And that's talking about morally. We will have no sin nature anymore. It's gone. All the deception, all the Jacob, all the deceiving, manipulating, lying, all the things that we do in our humanity, gone. Won't that be wonderful? I mean, that will be a blessing. And I think the older you get and the more you realize our sinfulness and the more we realize how bad we really are when we look at ourselves, the more blessed this truth becomes. One day, God is going to deliver us from our own sinfulness. Praise his name. The third lesson that we learn God does not quit on his people. Praise the Lord. Even when we attempt to bargain with him. Jacob here, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. What does God say? God just smiles. Oh, Jacob, you're going to do it. You just don't know. And by the way, the rest of this story of Jacob's life is fascinating. I mean, he's going to be in the next lesson. You're going to see how he's, he picks a wife. I mean, you, are you thinking about a wife? You a young person today thinking about... You're going to learn some principles about on wife picking, husband picking. And then you're going to learn what do you do when you're in a crazy family. I mean, you ever been in a crazy family? How do do you handle a a wild mother-in-law or a crazy uncle or, you know, all this craziness going on in the family? 
Well, remember my last point. Sometimes we just have to trust God to work that out, don't we? But do our part. But God doesn't quit on his people even when we attempt to bargain with him. God is working and working and working and he's going to do exactly what he wants to do. Kent Hughes again, this is one of the best sections in his commentary, says, Surprise fleeing sinner, God is there. Surprise sinful sinner, God is there. Surprise evil schemer, God is there. Surprise faithless one, God is there. He is not going to quit on his people. I mean, looking at Jacob's life, that is such hope. If God is not going to quit on him, why do you think he would quit with you? I mean, you know, you might be pretty bad, but I doubt you're as bad as Jacob. I would say there's a lot of hope still for you and for me. And thank and praise his name for that. John Walton writes this in his commentary, Jacob is still more scoundrel than saint. He treats God as a passenger along for the ride, whereas God insists, and rightfully so, on being in the driver's seat. God, I'm going to, I'll do this, but, but you let me do it this way. God says, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. You know, we try to bargain like that with God, don't we? You know, when God tells us, when we know that we should do one thing, and yet we choose to do the other, and no, we shouldn't, and we think that somehow we're going to work our way around God, sometimes God lets us do that. And then after we do it, what does he say? He just patiently waits. I, I told you. I told you. And then perhaps the greatest lesson that you and I can learn, by the way, this was Walton's too, I have to read this. Too often our requests of God focus on our material gain. Jacob, Lord, if you'll bless me, if you'll do this, if you'll do that. Now, sometimes our requests focus on what God does for us materially. Recovery or health, success and adventure, pleasant circumstances and the like. Listen closely. Perhaps God would be pleased if more of our requests focused on spiritual gain, such as stronger faith, purification of thoughts, straightening out of attitudes. You know, Lord, change my attitude. Patience in hardship. Love for those we find difficult to love. Sensitivity to his leading and increased commitment to his service. I mean, you know, perhaps this would please God more than give me a house, give me a car, help me to, to have this, help me not to be sick, help me to, you know, I'm just saying, interesting. Walton goes on and writes, these are the sort of requests that never presume upon his grace. Wow. Now that was life-changing. They will achieve his purpose of helping us come to an understanding of our true nature and our dependence upon him. So this week when we start praying or requesting of God, this was a challenge I, I took in my own life. Instead of asking God for material blessings or my health or something like that, start asking him for things like 
purification. Helping me love people who are unlovely. Changing my own attitude. Circumstance. I mean, just kind of revolutionary, and I thought I would pass that on to you. The fourth lesson <clears throat> that we learn, and this is a blessing, by the way. <clears throat> Do you know the other story where the, the Jacob's ladder, I like to call it God's ladder. Do you know where the other time this story is mentioned in the Bible? Anybody? <clears throat> Jesus actually used this in the Gospel of John. So let's turn over there this morning. John chapter 1. <clears throat> you remember the context of this story? <clears throat> John chapter 1. I'm in verse 43. And, and here's the lesson. God provides access to everyone in their wilderness who will believe on Jesus for eternal life. <clears throat> I think I actually put this on the screen. <clears throat> but I love to hear pages rattle in a Bible. <clears throat> The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. <clears throat> he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. By the way, this is how church should work. This one finds this one and brings them. And that one finds that one and brings them. That's the nature of how it works. A personal invitation. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Shawsville? I usually use West Virginia. Now Tim and Stacy, something good can come out of there. <clears throat> can anything good come out of West Virginia? This, this would be like what they would be saying. <clears throat> Philip said to him, well, come and see. By the way, isn't that interesting? God uses the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places to do the greatest things. <clears throat> he let Jesus be born in the armpit of Israel. He let Jesus grow up among the Gentiles of Galilee, you know, those, those old Gentiles. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no Jacob. Mm. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? <clears throat> Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you are up under the fig tree, I saw you. My presence was there. And he's going, now wait a minute, there wasn't nobody who saw me under no fig tree. I was the only one there. No security cameras back then. How did he know I was there? Now notice what he answered him. Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. What did Jesus say? Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? Well, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened 
and the angels of God, are you ready? Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. My presence is there. You know what Jesus was basically saying? Wherever I am, there you have the house of God, and there you have the gate into heaven. Now, do you ever remember Jesus making a statement, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the way? By the way, I put that up on the screen for you. Who is it, by the way, in John chapter 14? Y'all are here. Go over to John chapter 14. Notice this conversation, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. By the way, you know what the word way means? It's the literal word hodos, which means the road. I am the road. I am the road. I am the way. I am the gate. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. You, by the way, this is kind of eye-opening, isn't it? People think that they can climb Jacob's ladder or climb a ladder, do better every day, and they're going to finally reach God. My friend, if you can climb the ladder all you want, but when you get to the end, you're going to find out it was laying against the wrong wall. You can climb the corporate ladder of success. You can climb the ladder of finance. You can climb the ladder of whatever you want to climb. And if you think you're going to get to heaven by good works or by any type of family relationship or any other way, you've got news coming. It's against the wrong wall. Because the only way to heaven is through Jesus, God, who came in flesh and died and paid the penalty for our sin. And the grace and the blessing of this whole story is that Jesus makes a way for whoever is willing to put their faith and their trust in Him and Him alone. And so my question to you this morning is, have you put your full faith, your full trust, everything within you, have you put it and placed it on the person of Jesus Christ and what He did on Calvary's heel when he died on a cross and took the full wrath of your punishment upon himself. In other words, there was a sin penalty transfer from you to Jesus when he died on the cross. And if you are trusting him and what he did on the cross to be the sin bearer and make the full payment for your Jacob, your deception, if you're trusting Him to pay that penalty, then He is the way, the truth, and the life, and you will come to the Father because you're coming through Him. But if we trust in any other way besides Jesus, according to Him, you can't get to the Father. 
All religions are not equal, according to Jesus. He said it. Coexist does not exist. The cross is not one among many. The cross is the only way. And by the way, just let me share this with you. Not one other religion has God in flesh taking the wrath of God for the sin of man. Not one. This is the only one. The Bible. God becomes sinful man and dies in our place. And takes our wrath. And then to prove that he was God and that he died, he rose from the grave in a resurrected body. And he's coming again for his people. And we must believe that. Jesus told Nicodemus, a teacher of the law of Israel, he knew the first five books and never even had to open a scroll. He had them memorized. Jesus told him, unless you are born again, unless you are born from above, you won't even see the coming kingdom you're waiting for. You won't see it. You must be born again. And so today, I say to you, if you don't know Jesus, you must be born again. And the way you do that is by placing your faith on Him and His death, burial and resurrection for your sin. But I have an idea that the preponderance of people listening are His children. And we're snaking around through life. And we're thinking to ourselves, well, I'll work this out and God will do this. Listen to me, give up on that. Give up on that. Let God have His way. Submit to His leading. Submit to His yielding, His prompting. And allow Him to work in our life to conform us into the image of His Son by whatever means is necessary. And by the way, he may even be using a Laban to do it. Now, Father, have your way in our hearts and in our life. Thank you for never giving up on us, and thank you for being faithful. You're such a faithful God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. And I pray that you'll guide our lives, our weak, and the years that we have, if we have those, before you come to do a work in our own life, in our own family, to make us more like Jesus. Until one day, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior comes, and we're like Him. Help us to be quiet and give you your way. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, by the way, if you're here this morning or... You've came in and you, you're not sure if you have eternal life in Jesus. You have questions. You have doubts. Brian and I are here and other believers are here to help you. If you struggle with that question, please come and see us. I mean, you, you have to understand our situation. We cannot read your mind. We can't read your heart. We don't know what you struggle with unless you share it with us. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you have a struggle or you have a problem in your life, you have questions about the faith or Christianity or Jesus or something, come and see us. That's why we're here. We want to help you, okay? God bless you and thank you again for coming this morning.